In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. And we'll read the rest as we get to it, but let's pray. Lord, use your word. Your word brought this universe into existence. Your word brings dead bones to life. Your word gives sight to the blind. Would your word bring encouragement this morning? Would your word bring exhortation and new life? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, one blessing of being a pastor is getting to be part of some of the most significant aspects of life, whether that's being there soon after a child is born or being a part of weddings or being there for funerals. A pastor gets to do those things. And yet, one of the interesting things is though I had observed many of those numerous times, once it was my turn to lead, all of a sudden I was thinking, what do I do? I'd been, I've been to probably 20 plus weddings, but when I did my first wedding, I thought, wait, does she stand on the right or the left? Do we do this part or this part first? And thankfully, there's a rehearsal dinner the night before where you go over all that so you don't look too uh, out of place when it happens. But the point is, we can observe things many times, but not actually know them, not actually come to know the truth of them. And not just, not just pastors. As students, there were probably times where you thought, oh, I know this. I'm ready for the test. I know what's going on. Then you get there and you realize you knew, you were aware of the material, but you didn't actually know the material. Or you, maybe you've watched someone do something like ice a cake, and you watch them and you go, how hard could it be? I mean, they just take that thing and... So you get out the piping tool, you get out the spatula, and all of a sudden you're thinking, this is not easy at all. I watched, I saw what it was, but I actually don't know how to do it. Well, in this chapter, we see that King Ahaz has observed many things, but he's actually not following them himself. And the chapter is not only asking questions of Ahaz's life, it's also asking us, in the first six verses that we already read, who are you imitating? Then in the next three verses that we'll read later, who are you trusting? And then the chapter ends in the last verses, 10 to 20, who are you worshiping? But it begins the first section. You can see it on the bulletin. Who are you imitating? We read of this new king, King Ahaz. Remember, we've got these two kingdoms. We've got Judah in the south, which has been mostly faithful, and Israel to the north, who, starting with their first king, Jeroboam, has been rebelling against the Lord, worshiping other gods. 
And Ahaz, king of Judah, now comes on the throne when he is 20 years old and he reigns 16 years. But tragically, we read in verse 2 in the middle, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now we've read that phrase over and over and over regarding the kingdom to the north, the kingdom of Israel. But only with two kings of Judah have we heard this. Most kings, it is said, they've done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, how could Ahaz do this? When we ask the question, why do we do what we do? We're often given two popular answers. The first is that it's our environment. It's our, what people call our nurture. It's maybe the way your parents acted or the way you had people around you growing up. You were nurtured into a certain mindset, certain way of living. So that's now why you do what you do. Others say, well, no, it's not their nurture. It's their biological makeup or their body chemistry or their brain. It's more their nature. And you can go back and forth reading people arguing different lines. It's their nurture, it's their nature, or other aspects of life. And yet Ahaz had a perfect, well not perfect, but a very good nature. He had great ancestors. He had good nurture. He had his father who was a reformer who brought Israel, Judah, sorry, back to worshiping God. And he had a great ancestor, King David. Yet rather than picking up his cues from any of those good examples, we read in verse Three, that he gets his cues from the kings of Israel. And you might be thinking, wait, the very Israelite kings who we just read last chapter are in the midst of collapse and ruin because of their rebellion against God? That's who he chooses to mimic his life after? Yes, those kings of Israel. But not only those kings, but it goes on and even more horrifically, he says he models his worship after the nations around him. And he offers his only son, not only son, sorry, offers his son, one of them, as a sacrifice to the gods. But notice the phrase is added right after that. This is of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You know, it's a warning. Look, following these practices that Israel did, following what the nations did, what does it lead to? It leads to judgment. Ahaz and Judah, you need to change your ways. And Ahaz here serves as a stark reminder of the folly of sin. If we mention the word sin in our culture, many people think sin, oh, those are the bad things you do, lying, cheating, stealing, those things. But sin from the Bible, sin is at first a power inside of us that every person is born with when they're from Adam. Christ, not coming directly from Adam, but being conceived by the Spirit, was not born with the sinful nature. But we, in our sinful nature, are born sometimes doing foolish things. Consider children. Their parents, day after day, year after year, have provided food, shelter, clothing. You would think if there's anyone who should be trusted, it's parents. And yet when a parent says, look, this is going to harm you, don't do this. What does the child now want to do? That. Well, that's foolish. These people, years of faithful love. And yet, the very thing they say not to do, they want to do. But this isn't just children. What do so many people want? They want their life to be like celebrities. We want to be rich. 
We want to be famous. And yet they never stop to think of the fact that the divorce rates of celebrities, of those in Hollywood, is twice that of the rest of the U.S. Those who they look to for, oh, if my life would be like that, the ones they want to imitate, their life is not that great. Or others think, oh, if I just had wealth, then life would be great. And they ignore the warnings over and over that 70% of people who win the lottery or get a windfall of cash are bankrupt in just a few years. You know, in contrast, what are we told? Well, here, the church, this is repressive. It's soul, it's mind-crushing. However, as Josh Howerton notes, the data shows church attendance is correlated with less depression, less suicide, less emotional pain indicators such as substance and substance abuse or smoking. Attending church gives you greater social support. It gives you greater meaning in life, greater lasting life satisfaction, and children tend to grow up more happy. Not only that, but shockingly, the Washington Times reported that regular churchgoers were the only segment of the population whose mental health actually improved during the pandemic. And yet, we're told, wonderful, horrible. And Ahaz is reminding us of the masterful con artist sin is. Because sin, what makes what looks beautiful to be painted as ugly, and what is ugly to be painted as beautiful. It takes the enjoyable, godly life and says, in scenes of darkness, boredom, oppression, destruction. And then it takes the ugly, life-ruining sin and gets out the beautiful spring colors and the palette and says, Oh, life, joy, freedom. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Even after we have had our eyes opened, our sinful flesh, the world, the devil, tempts us to consider what is beautiful to be ugly. We see this in Revelations 3, 7. There God warned the church in Philadelphia, For you say, I'm rich, I'm prospered, I need nothing. They, they got this vision, oh, life's great. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so we need to cry that God would continue to open our eyes. That he would continue to give us desires like Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That God would give us eyes to realize that's what beauty is. Or as we read earlier, Psalm 16.11 you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so may God give us eyes to see the beauty, joy, and satisfaction that last. May we see past the lies that are painted for us in our culture. The lies of sin. But we need to be honest. We're not just talking about these big sins out there. You know, if we're honest, our own proclivities and temptations, they paint those same distorted pictures for us. 
don't know about you, I can rationally sit and think about some of my desires and go, that's foolish. Why would I want that? That is going to ruin my life. And yet, I still know that there's a part of me that says, oh, that'd be wonderful. That'd be great. Sin lies. It makes us foolish. Not only does it make us foolish, but we see in verse 4 to verse 6 that it will never be satisfied. It always wants more. Because Ahaz, he does the horrific child sacrifice, but he doesn't stop there. He then, we read, he starts making sacrifices to false gods under every green tree, on every high place. Every place is now an opportunity for sin. Every place is now an occasion for sin. All of life has been warped by his sin. And we see this today. You probably have some co-workers, some friends. You can make the most innocuous comment and it gets twisted into a joke of the things that they love. You know, what they love becomes what shapes everything else, but it's never satisfied. And Ahaz here, his whole life is being consumed by his imitation of this false worship. And yet God in his justice and love will not allow Ahaz to continue. So in verse 5, he sends judgment through Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel. Not only that, 2 Kings 28 tells how the Edomites and even the Philistines are attacking at this time. So who do you want to imitate? Who are your ultimate role models? Who are the people that you go, oh, if only I could act like them. Oh, they are such an example. I wish my life was like them. You know, Christ paints for us a very different picture than the world does. He says, servants are greater than masters. He says it's better to love than to be loved. And we learn this by his teaching and by example. You know, Jesus did not just show up once a week, teach and then go off to a reclusive place. He was with his disciples. He was with the crowds. Paul could then even later say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think sadly, sometimes Christians get the idea, well, what we need to do is just teach truth and then everyone go home and they'll live it out. Well, yes, we need to teach truth. We should never back away from that. But we also need to be involved in one another's lives so that they can imitate our, not just teaching, but our example. They can say, see how we live and follow us. Well, Ahaz had seen, he had observed faithful examples, but he did not come to follow that truth himself. Thus, it's not surprising that he's now going to trust Assyria to deliver him. Look down in verses 7 through 9 of Second Kings 16. We see this in the section, Who are you trusting? It reads, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying his people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So as Ahaz is seeing his reign collapsing, he doesn't realize this is happening because I'm rebelling against God. 
So rather than repenting, rather than turning in trust to God, he turns to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. We had this read earlier for us from Isaiah 7 that's describing the situation and how in this time the prophet Isaiah came and told Ahaz to trust in the Lord. Israel and Syria have made an alliance and they've said, we want to get rid of the king of Judah, Ahaz, and we want to put someone in his place who will fight with us against Assyria. And yet, they, though they come and they win many battles, they are unable to take Jerusalem. But it reads in Isaiah 7, 2, that because of the siege on Jerusalem, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. But God speaks encouragement to Ahaz, even in the midst of all his rebellion, through Isaiah, he tells him, watch out. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be faint. He even says, look, these kings, Syria, Israel, you think they're great? They're like smoking firebrands. They're almost out. They're done. The situation looks dire, but trust me. And yet Ahaz won't trust. And so he sends to Tiglath-Pileser for help. Not only did he turn to the king of Assyria, but he did so in covenantal language. Notice verse 7 again. Because there he says in the middle, I am your servant and your son. That's language God had used of his people. Leviticus 25.42, he says, For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. Or Exodus 4.22, God speaking through Moses says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Not only does Ahaz switched loyalty from the Lord to Tiglath-Pileser. He also gives to Tiglath-Pileser the things given to the Lord. He empties out the temple. Your one man, Del Davis, he wrote a little poem about this to the tune of, My Jesus, I love thee. He writes, My Tig, I bribe thee. You know I'm your man. For thee always promises I view as mere sand. You mighty oppressor, my savior art thou. If ever I needed you, Dear Tiglath, tis now. He has switched what should be his song to the Lord, and he's given it to this foreign king, Tiglath-Pileser. And we have to admit, on a purely horizontal level, it worked. King of Assyria comes in, he attacks Syria's capital, Damascus, and Syria and Israel go off to fight there. However, this solution only works for time. It's like your toe hurting, so amputating your leg. Yes, you have gotten rid of your toe pain, but uh, you have made the situation much worse. Judah's been saved from a physical foe for a time. But in so doing, by trusting the nations rather than trusting God, they have made God their enemy. That's why Isaiah 7.14 describes the sign of judgment by saying, the virgin will conceive and bear a son named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Now, we often hear that verse at Christmas time, quoted in Matthew 1, and think that's a verse of comfort. Oh, Emmanuel, God is with us. And yet, originally, this was a warning. God is going to come be with you in judgment, since you didn't want him to come for deliverance. And God is telling, he's warning Ahaz, that you, you thought 
Syria, you thought Israel they should be feared? Actually, Assyria is going to come. The one you trusted for deliverance is going to be the one who comes in destruction. They will come in greater numbers. They will shame you. They'll take you to exile. And your land will become worthless, forsaken, and overgrown. Isaiah says all that in Isaiah 7. So ironically, tragically, the very thing that Ahaz used, that he turned to for deliverance, became his downfall. And that is true just as much then as it is today. Whatever you turn to to deliver you, if it is not the Lord, it will ultimately turn to be destruction. When I was a math teacher, I got to know my students, some better than others, and sometimes I'd hear wonderful things of their life. And sometimes I would hear horrific things of their life. And two of my students tragically turned to drugs to deliver them. One ended up dying, and the other ended up in long-term rehab. And yet, like Ahaz, turning to Assyria, it brought help for a time. You know, the first few times were enjoyable. It was wonderful, but it couldn't last. It couldn't provide long-term pleasure. You know, the problem with sin is not that it's unenjoyable. Sin is very enjoyable or none of us would do it. It's that it won't last because it's rebellion against God. You know, here, Ahaz was delivered from his immediate problems, but in the long term, Assyria did not stay loyal, but turned against them. You know, Ahaz's situation foreign enemies attacking his capital, is actually a macrocosm of the little things we deal with every day. We don't face sieges, but we face co-workers, classmates, and peers whose approval we crave. We face deadlines, tasks, bills, relational challenges, and sometimes it all just seems massively overwhelming. And we just want release. We want freedom. We want deliverance. So where do you turn? Now, none of us is sending bribes to Tiglath-Pileser, but we might try to send all our problems away with escapism. You know, for most of us, that's not going to be drugs or alcohol, but it might be found in hours in watching shows or playing games. It might be found in endless scrolling and posting on social media. It might be found in binge eating or unending music or viewing adult material or just anything to get my minds off my problems. Or it might not be escapism and avoidance, but we might try and solve our solutions in ways that God has told us not to. I saw a study this week that even a majority of people in the U.S. who say abortion is wrong will still help a family member get an abortion with an unwanted pregnancy. Like Ahaz, they probably think, this problem's too big for God to fix. He cannot solve my problems. I need some other help. I need something else. I need to fix my problems. This is the only solution. This is going to be too tragic. And yet, like Ahaz, it's only going to lead to more problems. You know, the problem was not that Ahaz was unspiritual actually he's quite spiritual he's worshiping under every green hill on every high palace everywhere he's worshiping it's that he's not worshiping the true and living god 
He's not trusting God. And so Emmanuel will not be his safety. Emmanuel has become his stone of stumbling. Now, please don't misunderstand. Trusting God doesn't mean that Ahaz should have done nothing. Yes, he should have built walls. He should have had an army. But he shouldn't fear the attacking nations. You know, sometimes people press trusting God into situations in which is not anything that God has promised to bring deliverance. God does not promise if you put all on black, he's going to get you out of that if you lose all your money. He hasn't promised that he'll heal every single health problem. Even we read in the New Testament, Paul telling Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He didn't say, Timothy, just pray, just trust God and you'll get better. You know, yes, we trust God in everything and we use the means that he's given us, the means that he has set our right to seek deliverance. So we trust God and we use those means that he's given us. But Ahaz, he's not trusting God. He's imitating the wrong crowd. He's trusting the wrong people. And thus, it's not surprising, though it is tragic, that he ends in verses 10 through 20, worshiping God in his own ways. Let's read those verses. 2 Kings 16, 10 through the end. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and the grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering. And throw it on, the, all, on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice, but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off from the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them. And he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the other entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So Ahaz has paid off Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser went and conquered Damascus. And seemingly Ahaz now goes to thank him and bow before him. And when he's there, he sees this altar to some other god. And he goes, that's beautiful. So he makes descriptions, diagrams, drawings, and he sends them to Uriah the priest in Jerusalem and says, build one like this. Then shockingly, Uriah the priest builds it just like Ahaz sent him. He's so motivated that even as it's done before Ahaz returns. And then Ahaz, he goes up to this new altar and he, even though he's not the priest, 
he gives the sacrifices. You know, if you read 1 Kings 12, 32 and 33, you'll find that the language there is very similar. What was going on there? Well, that is the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, and that's when King Jeroboam makes his own altar and goes up on it. He is acting just like the kings of Israel, but Jeroboam's altar, what did it lead to? It's only led to the destruction of Israel. Thus Judah eventually should expect the same thing. Ahaz is so brazen in his idolatry, though, that not only does he make a new altar, but he also decides, no, I think, you know, honey, maybe we should move this over here and move that over there. Hey, I think I can make this look better. Let's reconfigure the temple. And so he lays out new places that everything should go. Not only that, he decides, you know, the order of worship, it's a little stale. You know, we should start doing some new things. Let me give a new way that we can worship. And so he commands, look, we're going to start doing all the sacrifices on this altar over here that we just built. And yes, we're going to keep Solomon's altar. We're just going to put it on the side only for me. And again, tragically, we read that Uriah the priest just does it all. Uriah is standing in stark contrast to men like Phinehas or Jehoiada or Azariah who stood against kings and said, no, we will not do what you say because our loyalty is to the king of kings. He is more like the priests in Judges 17 who do whatever he's told as long as he gets more money, more power, more influence. As if all that were not enough, Ahaz now has a new concern in his life. We see this at the end of verse 18, because why does he change some of these other things? It reads at the end of verse 18, because of the king of Assyria. Now, people who have studied this have said, the Assyrians did not normally dictate how the nations they conquered worshipped. So it seems more that Ahaz is doing this not out of command, but rather because he just wants to keep the king of Assyria happy. His loyalty has completely switched from what God has commanded to what the king of Assyria may want. And I think this makes this question, when we gather to worship, are we doing what we think everyone wants? Or are we asking, what does God want? Or our primary questions, what will people think of this? Or what does God think of this? I say primarily, because there's nothing wrong with looking at your culture and saying, how can we best communicate the truths? We expect that of our missionaries. We should expect any culture that the culture does not change the message, but it does cause us to think about what is the best way we can communicate the message. That's radically different than saying, you know, if we want to get more young people in here, we're going to really have to update. We're going to need to change our statement of faith. You know, we need to get with the times and realize our views, they're not popular anymore. Now, most people are not going to be as blatant as that. They won't change the statement of faith. They just give all the words new meaning. They, gave, they say the exact same things, but you say, what? that's not actually what those words mean. Or they just no longer talk about it. Yeah, yeah, we believe that. Well, can you tell us what you believe? Well, it's tucked away in some far corner on our website. No, 
what we believe is of first importance. You know, others haven't changed their teaching, but they've shifted their primary focus in their times together on people. Now, I'm sure these churches have good intentions, but doesn't it convey that man has become the emphasis of our time when we change from calling it worship to experience time? You know, worship seems more about what we're giving. Experience seems more about what I'm getting. Now, I do hope, I do pray that when we're together, we all do experience and come to enjoy the Lord, to see Him in a greater sense. But that is secondary to God first, being worshipped truly, being worshipped correctly. The God who is, the God who has revealed Himself, has told us how He wants to be worshipped. Now, of course, we don't have the same level of guidelines that they had in the Old Testament. God gave the Israelites specific sacrifices, specific structures. We don't have a divinely ordained order of worship, though it might be announcements, two songs, scripture, two songs, sermon, and a song. That might be it. But if there was anything, it's not written in God's word. You know, God told the Israelite priests what to wear. There's no guidelines for what I need to wear up here. God showed them specific instructions for the temple. There's no chapter and verse that says, where we should put the pulpit, where we should put our instruments, nothing like that. God told the Israelites many things that he has not told us. However, God has told us things about himself, and there can be no deviance. On the fundamentals, we must stay focused on the truth. We must stay focused on what does God want, not what does man want. And sadly, again, many churches have slight deviance. It wasn't too long ago we had a couple families visit our church. Why? Because the church they've been going to here in town for years had to set aside a time when we we're going to fast and pray. But then this year they decided this year we're going to do yoga and meditate. Well, wait, those are spiritual practices. What's the big deal? You know, we're, we're spiritual people. We're going to worship? Well, Yes, meditation is spiritual, but the meditation that yoga encourages is not the meditation that Scripture encourages. You know, are we going to stick to the way God tells us to worship, or are we going to do it the way the world is telling us? You know, our orders in the New Testament are clear. Preach the Word, pray, and praise Him. That's not always the most flashy, but it's what God calls us to do. But let's not just focus on what we do in here. What about each of us? Sometimes people say, they may say this to you. Well, my God would never allow fill in the blank to happen. Or my God is not like fill in the blank. To which sometimes we need to gently say, well, if your God is not like that, then your God is not the God of the Bible. If your God is not the God who would strike down Uriah for touching the, altar, the, sac, the Ark of the Covenant, then that's not God. If your God says, you know what, you can come to me however you want, well, that's not the God of the Bible because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There can be no deviance. And these shifts begin small. It's a little thing here, a little thing there. But by the end, there are massive changes. I don't know if you know that almost every single Ivy League school 
began as a place to train ministers of the gospel. But we need a little deviance here, a little deviance there. And now, hundreds of years later, they are all openly hostile to the gospel. Even last year, Harvard's chaplain was appointed, even though he's an atheist. We are starting, oh, you know, we, we want to reach him, so let's just make a little deviation. It's not a big thing. And then once they're in, then we'll let them know the truth. No, we need to be faithful to God and trust him for the results. Now, as we go through this, as you look at chapter 16, you might think, what a depressing chapter. You know, Judah's been going along. They've been mostly hanging on firmly. And now it seems like one generation and the whole thing has fallen apart. For the most part, Judah's been doing good. They've been a good example. And yet now Ahaz comes in and with one king, 16 years, it seems as though the nation is in shambles. And in that there is a warning. It was just 16 years from faithfulness to complete idolatry. And so none of us should ever go, well, look, I have good parents. I go to a good church. I'm fine. We would, we would never become like what the pastor is warning about. Well, we could too if we are not faithful day in and day out. None of us can presume, oh, well, my family's always been believers. I'm not going to deviate. I'll be fine. We must be vigilant for the truth. But in this darkness, there is light. You know, though it is dark, there will come out of it great reform. Even Ahaz's own son, who had the worst nurture, will bring reformation. Well, how can he do this? Because God can change our nurture and our nature. What does Paul write? We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Your hope is not on anything horizontal. It's not that if we get a new program, if we get a new website, if we get a new thing, oh, everything's going to be great. Our hope is that our God is a nature-changing God. He takes people who are blind and he gives them eyes to see. Not only does he change nature, though, he can change our nurture. He can change years of people being raised up to hate God, to loving God. Paul could not have had a more Jesus-hating nurture. And in Philippians 3, he lays out all the things that were all about him and his man-made religion. And then on a Damascus road, he was changed. And so what does he say? But whatever gain I had, all that I was nurtured in, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so as we look out, not just on Judah, but our own country and go, well, how's there going to be any hope? All these children are being raised in a way that is so anti-God. So was Paul. And yet he then went from Jesus hating to Jesus loving, willing to die for him himself. And all of this 
gives us hope because God has promised this. You know, Isaiah 7 was warning. Isaiah 8 was how they were going to stumble over this stone and they were going to go into darkness. And yet, then, what does Isaiah 9 say? Isaiah 9, right after this says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Well, what's that light? How can he say this? Because a future king was promised. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Our hope is not here. We might, the United States might never recover. But we have a king who will come again. The light of the nations and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. That can be encouragement that there's new life. But there's also the warning, if he's not your life, if he's not your hope, then he will be coming judgment. How will you receive him? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do get discouraged by the darkness. The darkness even within us. The darkness in our town, in our nation, in our world, yet there is hope. Because of your son, may we turn to him. May we see that he is the king of kings. And may we bow the knee. It's in his name we pray. Amen.